who trust in him. We're looking at a psalm today that talks about that. It's Psalm 40. So I invite you to turn there in the Bible or you can look on the outline. I have it, the passage printed for you there. We're uh, actually re- resuming our sermon series in Hebrews today. We've been away from it for a little while. And of course, as you know, our custom is that we have a, a song that relates to our sermon series that we sing for a few weeks, uh, usually six weeks or eight weeks or something like that, varies. But uh, so today I'm introducing a new psalm of focus that will go along with what we're coming to in Hebrews. We're, we just finished Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6. We got that far in our Hebrews series before we had a little break from Hebrews. And so we'll be picking up with Hebrews 8, 7 and continuing all the way till uh, 10, 18 of Hebrews with this particular song as our song of focus. So uh, Psalm 40, verses 1 through 10. Uh, you recall, as I mentioned when we sang it a minute ago, that verses 10 through 17 was our psalm of focus, not previous, the, the, the most recent one, but the time before that, when we were looking at Hebrews chapter 5 and most of chapter 6, where it speaks about the compassion and the intercession of Christ, Christ who pleads with us, with us, and for us. As our priest, he does both of those things. And Hebrews 5 and 6 talks about that. So he pleads with us, pleading with us to follow him and to trust in him. And he pleads for us before the Father. That's what we looked at, Psalm 40, 10 through 17. Then after that, we took up Psalm 110. That was for Hebrews chapter 7 and the first part of chapter 8, first six verses where it speaks of Jesus being a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's what we've been looking at lately, that he was the one who reigns forever at the uh, right hand of the Father after he finished his work of salvation. And the portion of Hebrews that we come to now then, again, Hebrews 8, 7 to 10, 18, presents our Lord Jesus Christ as our gracious, powerful Redeemer who lifts us from sin and condemnation into a better covenant with a better sanctuary and a better sacrifice. He is himself the sacrifice. So that's what we're looking at in Hebrews in the upcoming section. Listen now as I read this psalm to you, Psalm 40, and we'll do the first 10 verses. We're overlapping verse 10. We're having it with both times. We, the Psalter only goes through verse 9 on this part, but wanted to go to verse 10. So here, here is the word of God. Please give careful attention to it. Psalm 40, verse 1. To the chief musician, a psalm of David, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my steps. He has put a new song in my mouth. Praise to our God. Many will see it in fear and will trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust and does not respect the proud nor such as turn aside to lies. Many, O Lord, my God, are your wonderful works which you have done and your thoughts toward us cannot be recounted to you in order. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears you have opened 
burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. Then I said, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. I have proclaimed the good news of righteousness in the great assembly. Indeed, I do not restrain my lips. O Lord, you yourself know. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have declared your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great assembly. There will end a reading of God's word. Thanks be to God for his holy and infallible word. May he add his blessing to his word. In seeking to open this psalm to you, I want to begin by reminding you of something that is true of the psalms and that is often not recognized or often forgotten. The psalms are a collection of songs that the Lord has given to his church as his covenant people. Let's remember what we are as we sing them. We're part of the body of Christ that has been from the beginning of the world and will continue to the end of the world. We're, we're a universal or a holy Catholic church. Catholic means universal. We are the body of Christ. He, only, he has only one body. And these songs are about us as one church. You could almost say as one person, a corporation, a, co- a corporate entity with Christ as our head. We're, we're one made up of many. Right? So in one sense, we're one church. In another sense, we're many members, many different parts. That means that when we sing these songs, we need to understand that they're about the church's corporate experience with Jesus Christ. Okay, What we go through, we go through as a body of people, the body of Christ, having him as our head. As those united to him, We can sing about righteousness like we did a few minutes ago when we sang 18i. The righteousness that we have. Because this body of the body of Christ is righteous. Because the head has made it righteous. And and he, on the other hand, can confess sin because by his association with us, he took responsibility is our head for our sins. He doesn't have any sin of his own. He never sinned personally, but he represents us. So together with Christ, we can sing about being under severe trials, and at the same time we can sing about the incredible victories that we have, because there's people right now in the church, and there have been through history, that have suffered tremendous persecutions, and even though we might be not part of the church that's suffering those right now, we can sing about that with meaning because we're part of a body. And when part of the body is afflicted, we're all afflicted. In the same way, when there's great deliverance, part of the body delivered somewhere, it's our deliverance. Or when we think about in history what God has done. What is done for one member pertains to all. Think about it with your own body. If you have a broken hand... You might say, my hand is broken, but you say, I have a broken hand, don't you? Because you, all of you, has a broken hand. Yeah, the hand is just part of you, but it's you who has the broken hand. And at the same time, you might add, my hand is broken, but the rest of me is okay. It didn't get injured. 
But that does not take away the fact that you still have a broken hand and it affects you. If some members then are being persecuted or if they have been, we can sing about that because what is true of them pertains to us all. We tend to always think of ourselves in these days in isolation. Philosophies kind of go one way or the other. And right now we are in a time where people often think of themselves in isolation of others. But we need to learn to think of ourselves as members of one body with all of the saints who have ever lived and whoever will live and most of all one body with Christ because he is the master and the head. Before he came, when people died, they were said to be gathered to their people. Or sometimes they were said to be gathered to Abraham, who was one of the prominent people of, of faith. Uh, they were, they were, now, what do we say when some, a, a believer dies? We say they depart to be with Jesus. They're still gathered to their people, aren't they? But now there's one who is the head of us all. And so he kind of takes precedence over Abraham or anyone else. We're gathered now to him. When we die, we go to be with Christ. Does not mean that our individual liberty gets lost when we think this way or confused with other people. To use the body illustration again, when you say that your hand is part of your body, part of one body, you don't get it mixed up and think that your hand is your other hand or that your hand is your foot. It's still a hand distinct from the other, but it's yet part of the one body. So we don't, it's not like we get, some people in their philosophies will have one, everybody being one, and they all get confused and mingled up together so that there's no personal distinction. That's not what we're talking about. No, we're, we're one body in Christ with many members. This becomes very important in a psalm like Psalm 40. When we sing it, we need to realize that it is the testimony of the whole church of which Jesus is the head. What we do profoundly affects him. What we have done, the, all of the other members, is what sent him to the pit. Okay, the horrible pit. What he does profoundly affects all of us. What he did brought us up out of the pit. These songs are primarily his songs as our king in our head, but they are our songs if we belong to him. It is because of us and our sin that he goes to the pit, and it is because of him and his righteousness and sacrifice that we are raised from the pit. So you look at this psalm now. The psalm opens with the marvelous testimony of God's deliverance in the first two verses. The imagery is that of deliverance from a horrible pit. It is a vivid picture of us sinking into the filth and mire, the misery of our sin. We were being swallowed up by it to utter ruin, eternity in the pit. We were unable to escape. We couldn't rescue ourselves. There's nothing we could do. It's a picture of desperate pleading here. We're seen to cry out to God with patience, without relenting, literally Waited, I waited, is what it says here. Waiting for the Lord, I waited for the Lord. It's a Hebrew way of, of emphasizing. It's not a passive waiting, but it is an enduring cry for deliverance that will not be silenced. What I mean by passive waiting? Well, I'll just see what happens. I'll just kind of hang out and wait and see what happens. No, it's a waiting where you're crying, as it says. I cried out. We're crying out to the Lord and waiting and not stopping our cries. 
This is the way Jacob did. Jacob is a model of what real saving faith does. And what did Jacob say? I will not let you go unless you bless me. He knew that there was no blessing anywhere else. So he waited upon the Lord and he said, no, I'm, I'm not going to do anything else until you hear my prayer. He cried out to God. That's the idea here. It's a picture also of glorious deliverance to those who wait on the Lord. The Lord took notice of us. Look at the beautiful words from the middle of verse 1. And he, this is how God responded when we cried out to him. And he inclined to me. And he heard my cry. He also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my steps. Notice the actions of God. He inclined to me. He, he, he looked to consider what I was, my situation. He heard my cry, heard it so as to answer it. He set my feet on a rock. He completely delivered me from this pit that I was sinking in and established me on a rock. He established my steps. He gave me an entirely new walk, an entirely new life. We're given a, by God, we're given a new record, a new heart, and a new life, a new walk. That's what God does. Now, instead of sinking to oblivion in our filth and sin, we're able to walk in communion with God, to know Him and to live with Him forever and to serve Him forever and ever as His people in His own house. It is a radical deliverance for who? The one church. It is a deliverance for Christ who associated Himself with our sin. And it's a deliverance from us with whom he associated himself because of what he did. The deliverance described here then is the deliverance of Christ and his people as one church and one body. As a body, we were all condemned because of our sin. The whole church was sinking in that filth and ruin with no way to get out, utterly defiled and unclean. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were under the wrath and condemnation of our Creator. The situation where God's honor called for our destruction and punishment. But as a body, we were also a body that has been gloriously redeemed. We are also a body that has been gloriously redeemed. Christ, the head of the body, joined Himself to us as we were sinking in our sin. As our head and representative, He experienced the pit. For us, he bore the pains of hell because he bore our sins on the cross. He waited patiently for the Lord and the Lord inclined to him. He cried out to God and he was heard because of his godliness. When he was delivered, the whole church was delivered. We were as one man, one body with him as our head bearing our sin that he might deliver us all. He was raised from the lowest pit to the highest place in glory. He is set on a rock at the right hand of God the Father in glory. We who believe are raised with Him. It says that we're seated with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. His steps are established and our walk is established in Him as we follow Him as our mediator and our head. In verse 3 through 5 of this psalm, we sing and celebrate our deliverance from the horrible pit. 
Christ leading us in our praise to God. First, we say, He, God the Father, has put a new song in my mouth. It's in the mouth of Jesus and us together as as one body in Him. What is it? Praise to our God. The fact that we are now singing is His doing in two ways. First, because by His grace, He has taken in us what used to be a rebellious, hard heart of stone and given us a new heart that is responsive to God. There's there's a huge change that, that has to happen before any of us can be a part of Christ and His body. There, there, the new birth is, is what God does. A change so that, so that we want to be with God. Our whole attitude toward God changes. Instead of being someone that is resistant and hard toward God and doesn't want doesn't to hear the gospel, we become someone who says, this is wonderful. Our heart is engaged with, with the things of our Lord. We, now we're joined to Christ in Him. We live and we worship God, you see. We have a new song. There's been a fundamental change because we have been changed by the grace of God. Second, that by delivering us with so great a deliverance from our, the penalty of our sins and so on, that uh, He has done something so grand and glorious that it puts a song in our mouth. In other words, we have been changed ourselves. We also have a change in our situation that calls for praise. It brings forth praise if we understand it. We can't do anything else. How can we be silent when we were sinking away in filth and defilement and he brought us up out of the miry clay and established our feet on a rock? Notice the content of our song. Praise to our God. What a transformation. Before, when we were sinking the pit, our mouth was full of cursing. And now, in bitterness. And now, we're full of praise to our God. Complete change in our attitude. Christ Himself, as the head of the church, leads us in this praise. As He says in Psalm 22, according to Hebrews 2.12, I will declare your name. It tells us that Je- these are Jesus' words. And they certainly are. I will declare your name to my brethren, to the, to the rest of the people that you have given me. I'll declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. That word means the church. The great assembly. I will sing praise to you. So you see, Jesus fully entered into our sin and misery when he became our head, that he might enter the pit for us. And now he leads us in the way of praising God because God has delivered us from the pit by his hand. He experienced the deliverance just as much as we. In fact, he, delivered, he experienced it more than the rest of us because He was there bearing all of our sins in His own body. He was the part of the body that bore our transgressions on the cross. And then we are all delivered because of what He has done. Each Sunday then, He calls us together, as it says in Hebrews 2.12, He calls His brethren together to declare what God has done and to lead us in singing praise. Praising God in the assembly is a tremendous privilege. What an important thing it is for every member to do who is redeemed. Sometimes we don't have the, a sense of the importance. of When we gather together, it's not just to hear sermons, it's to praise God. Our worship and calling on, praising and adoring His name, it, our worship includes praising and, adore, and adoring His name. We hear what He has done, 
We worship Him. We commune with Him at the table. These are the things that we do as God's people. And as we do so, it has an evangelistic impact. As we praise God for our deliverance, what does it say? Many will see it and fear and will trust in the Lord. That's what the end of verse 3 says. Many will see it in fear. They'll see us praising God who were not before, who have been delivered out of the pit, and they will trust in the Lord. It's an evangelistic outcome when they see how God has delivered us in Christ from the horrible pit. They see it and they fear God. In other words, they come to accept that they they can't go on ignoring their creator. (laughs) They, They fear him. They realize that he has the force, that he is the one who holds their destiny in his hand, that you can't just go on without God. They see how he has delivered us and they come to trust him too. They believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and they are baptized into his body, the church. They come to him that they might be delivered from the horrible pit. And he delivers them also. So see, there's already people that are delivered. They're praising God. Other people see that. They hear that. And they fear God. And they come to trust God too. That's what happens in evangelism. In verse 4, we describe these persons who come to trust the Lord when they see his glorious deliverance. What does it say about them? Blessed is that man who makes the Lord his trust. So, of course, that's true of any of us that are trusting in Jesus Christ. Blessed is that one. And blessed is that man who makes the Lord his trust and does not respect the proud, nor such as turn aside to lies. No longer clinging to the lies of men. That's what the world does. You know, instead of listening to God, they take the empty promises that always fail and the vain philosophies of the world and can do nothing to deliver sinners from the miry clay. And they cling to those. Now, instead of that, they're blessed because they're trusting in the living God. Now they are with the people who have been delivered from the pit. Now they are established on the rock with Christ our Savior in God's house forever and ever. How blessed are they. Now they have a sure hope. Now they have a beautiful Savior and a new song of praise to God. A chain reaction is set off. What will happen when these new people come in? Then there will be people that will see that. And they will also come to fear the Lord and to trust in Him. And then people will see them and there will be more and more. This is how God works. Their spouse, their children will come very often with them and then other people that are in their circle, many of them also. We each have our individual testimonies of how we were sinking in the miry clay and of how the Lord delivered us. Our experiences are very different, aren't they? But if we're in Christ, we know that we have all been rescued by one event. Okay, like We have our personal rescue that when we were converted, but the event that rescued the whole church was when Jesus Christ went and bore the sufferings of, of, for our sin and was heard and was delivered up from the pit. Some of us, in our personal stories, some of us have a dramatic story where we were in hard rebellion against God. And then He opened our eyes and rescued us. 
He humbled us and showed us our sin and he showed us that deliverance is only in Christ so that we came to him and we were saved. Think about Paul persecuting the church and then gloriously, marvelously delivered from that by the hand of the Lord. Others of us, though, were rescued before we can even remember. What a glorious thing that is. From our earliest days, some, even like John the Baptist, are filled with the Holy Spirit from their mother's womb. These have been looking to God and resting in His saving work for as long as they can remember. They have been experiencing the power of His grace in their lives day by day, delivering them from sin and corruption that they find in their lives. Some of them are even more mindful of their deliverance than those who have had the more dramatic conversion because they have known God longer. And they have seen God deliver them for years and years and years from so many things. Even though they didn't have the, the, the wide open rebellion against God ever in their life. They, are, they have a knowledge of the salvation of God that actually surpasses those that do. That's not always the case. Jesus said those who are delivered from much love much. And that is very often the way it is. And sadly, some who have had this from their childhood become cold and indifferent to it. Some of them even are actually not even trusting in the Lord. They are not even actually regenerate. They were perhaps, and there's those like that, those who are maybe going along in an outward conformity, deceiving themselves until God brings conviction. And then those ones repent and believe as well when God does that. That's much the way it was for me. I was... I, I see that I was almost, almost unreachable, if you could say, because I had gone to church, to a, to a liberal church where the gospel wasn't really preached, and, and I had never really repented of my sin. I'd never really embraced the Lord Jesus until I was in university. And I was deceived because I thought, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm okay. It's all good. And it wasn't. Because I had not repented. I was not trusting in the Lord Jesus. I had never come to rest in Him for deliverance from my sin until those days. If God had left me, I would have gone on figuring I was okay until I was swallowed up by the pit in the end. An important question then for each of you. Have you been delivered? Something we all need to ask. Are you this hour you don't, I don't care about what happened in the past so much. Are you this very hour someone who knows that you're a sinner and that apart from God's deliverance that you cannot be saved? Are you someone who is resting in Him alone for your salvation? Resting in Christ who died to take away His people's sins? Do you believe that He is the Son of God who came to save sinners? And do you trust in Him alone for your salvation? Do you praise God for delivering you out of the horrible pit? This is the story of all the redeemed. Yes, they have their different stories, but that's where those who are redeemed are. They are those who are resting in Jesus Christ. For their salvation. They wouldn't dream of resting in their own works. They wouldn't dream of resting in some other religious activities or rituals or something like that. Resting in Him who came and died 
on the cross and was raised again for their righteousness. And now in verse 5, this song turns from speaking about God and what He has done to speak to Him. Notice the change. We address Him here. How do we address Him? With words of praise and adoration. Look at verse 5. Many, O Lord, my God, see we're talking to Him, are your wonderful works which you have done. And your thoughts toward us cannot be recounted to you in order. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. This is one of the best ways to praise God. By acknowledging to Him that His wonderful works are too wonderful for you. They're too glorious for you to comprehend. How could it be that He should rescue those who are sinking in their own filth in order to deliver them and establish them in His Son? What wondrous love of this. What is this? What mercy is this? What grace? We know that our words will be inadequate. That they'll, if we try to recount what God has done, we just won't be able to do it adequately. We try to express what He's done. It's too much for us. We're out of our depth. And it's good for us to acknowledge that when we praise God. We stand before Him lost in wonder, love, and praise. Lord, what You have done, I can't even, I can't even describe it all. It's too great. And having praised God, now we come to the most striking part of the whole psalm. The testimony of our glorious head, Jesus Christ, in verses 6 through 8. With Him we sing these words, verses 6 through 8. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears you have opened. Burn offering and sin offering you did not require. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. This is a powerful and unique testimony. He is the one written about in God's book. In other words, God's book, His holy writings, the holy scriptures, have oracles about this one. I am written about, He says, in the book. And he says, God's law is in my heart. And I, now, in a certain way, we can all sing this if we're redeemed. Okay? Every converted person can say, God's law is in my heart. Because he took away our stony heart, gave us a heart of flesh. He wrote his law in our heart. When God renews us, we are transformed. And he declares that this is so. It's a marvelous transformation. A transformation that we have in Christ by the baptism of his spirit. But there's something quite different here, isn't there? Something quite unique. He is the one who is testified of by the prophets, who is spoken of in the word. He came from somewhere else. I come from somewhere else to do your will. We know as we read in John 6, he came down from heaven, didn't he? He came to do the will of God. Because all the rest of us failed. Adam, who first represented us, failed to do the will of God. And we've all failed. And he came to do the will of God. There are not many who are written of before they come. And there are not many that come to do the will of God. There are prophecies given after men are born that tell what they will do. Like prophecies about David or someone, you know, I've tell about him and he's going to be king and so on. 
In the case of King Cyrus, we're told about him before he was born. There's prophecies and oracles about him. That he's a, he's a picture of Christ in a way, but that's, it's, not, it's not Cyrus. Some of the kings that Daniel prophesies about, he tells about kings that are going to come in the future, all the way up until the Roman times. But here is one who comes expressly to do the will of God. God's book is packed with oracles about him. We have ones that come before this psalm. The one God called the seed of the woman right after the fall who would crush the serpent's head and deliver his people. The son that was promised to Abraham who would bless Abraham and his seed as well as all the families of the earth. The lion of the tribe of Judah from whom the scepter would not depart that Jacob wrote about before he died. The prophets that the, the, or the prophet that Moses wrote about that we must hear or we will perish. The serpent that Moses lifted up in the wilderness in order that all who look to him might be saved. The son promised to David who would sit on his throne forever and ever and not see death. The one David called Lord and saw sitting at the right hand of Yahweh. Those are but some of the prophecies given up until the time of David. But because prophecy is not bound by time, we could speak of many oracles that came after this psalm was written as well. Because what is saying here, I came to do your will, is talking actually future to David, a prophecy, an oracle about what Christ would do when he came. So we're told then in the scriptures as well that he is the bridegroom. The, the, in the Song of Solomon. He is the one to be born of a virgin who would be called Emmanuel, Isaiah 7. The one who is the son given to us, a child born and a son given, given from heaven, God's son from heaven, who would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and of whose government, the increase of whose government would know no end. He is called the Branch of Righteousness, he is the one whose goings forth are said to be from everlasting in Micah. He is the servant of the Lord by whose stripes we are healed in Isaiah 53. But what is most remarkable of all when Psalm 40 speaks of him coming to do the will of God? It speaks of him doing the will of God in connection with sacrifices and offerings. That's remarkable. Like Adam came and he was supposed to do the will of God. But not in connection to sacrifices and offerings for sin. Because there were no sacrifices and offerings for sin when Adam was made. Because man had not fallen. He had not sinned. Now he's fallen. And this one comes to do the will of God with reference to sacrifices and offerings. Look at what it says. Four kinds of sacrifices are mentioned that seemed to represent the whole system in the Old Covenant. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. Now, sacrifice and offerings are, are, are more general statements. They include expressions of gratitude, where someone would offer a sacrifice to, or an offering of their first fruits that they were given to show thankfulness to what God had provided for them. 
They represent fellowship and communion with God. There were those sacrifices that they would share in, the worshiper and the people of God. I mean, I mean, in, in, in God. Then there are burnt offerings. Those were the ones that are called dedication offerings because they represent that the whole animal is burned up to God to show that we ought to be completely devoted to our God. We're not. And so they had these sacrifices in the Old Testament. Basically, you're saying in the Old Testament, since I'm not completely dedicated to God, then I'm going to take this animal to represent me and I'm going to offer it completely up to God because I'm not offered completely up to God. And so the burnt offering would, would represent them in that way. It was kind of an atonement for sin too. It covered that, but it was especially a dedication offering. And then you had the sin offerings that are mentioned here. And that's what you offered when you had committed a particular sin and you needed atonement and forgiveness. And it was also in a general way on the Day of Atonement when all the people received, like there was the offering made that, uh, to, to represent the atonement for their sins, an animal was killed in place of the sinner. So I deserve to die because of my sin, the worshippers say, and now this animal I offer in my place. So those were the sacrifices of the Old Testament. The emphasis, however, here in Psalm 40, is that's not what God required. What does it mean? I mean, you read, read the Old Testament. He said to do all this stuff. He appointed them in his law. What does it mean they're not required? They were, to be, they were to be offered faithfully by the people of God. But they could not do what needed to be done to provide what was needed for God's people, to use the language of this psalm, to deliver them out of the horrible pit and to establish them on the rock. Not a burnt offering. That's not really what God wants. He wants real dedication that's what's required. This is just symbolic. The burnt offering is just symbolic of real dedication. There had to be real dedication, not just a symbol of it. An animal. That's not, that's not what he requires. What animal also by its death could atone for my sin? Okay, here I am, a living soul made in the image of God. I'm going to take an animal who's not in the image of God and say, okay, here, this is for my sin. Oh, it's just a picture, a picture that God did appoint and he required in that sense. But it's not what he requires to take away our sin. There's something much more required. It has to be another one made in the image of God who does this. What animal by its death could provide real atonement? The people knew that these rituals were symbolic unless they were blind. Some of them were blind, but... Normally, people knew that they, they showed what was needed, but they were not what was required to deal with sin. But here's the one who comes to do what God requires as it is represented in these offerings and sacrifices. He is coming to fulfill the law's demand that we might be delivered from our sin and guilt. So when we said before, when it, this psalm says before that the things that were the oracles that were written of him in God's book, it includes all those sacrifices and stuff in the Old Testament and the priests offering the sacrifices and the sanctuary itself. He is all of that. He is going to fulfill all of those offerings. To put in the language of this psalm, 
he is going to do what was required to bring his church out of the miry clay and to establish it upon a rock. He's going to provide what is necessary to redeem his people. Of course, now he has done that. He is, as John the Baptist said, summarizing the whole thing, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In Revelation, they said, who is worthy to open the scroll? And he came forth a lamb that had been slain. He is the one who fulfilled what is required. Now, the portion of Hebrews that we're approaching in our sermon series testifies that this psalm is indeed about our Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10, 5 through 14. I'll just read it now. We're going to look at it in more detail later. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. They didn't atone for sin. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. You see, to do God's will concerning those sacrifices and things. Previously saying, Sacrifices and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not require, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, okay, the things that were instituted by Moses, that he may establish the second, the New Testament worship. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. Not through the offering of animals, but sanctified by the offering of the body of Christ once for all. Not over and over. He only had to do it once because it did it. It was real. It wasn't just a picture. Verse 11, and every high priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Again, we'll look at this more closely when we come to it in Hebrews But you can see how the scriptures testify in Hebrews that this Psalm 40 was written about Jesus Christ fulfilling what was symbolized in the Old Testament ceremonies. He is the one who actually did the will of God. That's what he came to do. To do the will of God, what the law required for sinners to be lifted out of the miry clay and established on a rock. It is by him that the whole church is lifted from the horrible pit He came that he might go into the pit and bring us out. Now that he has done this, he proclaims the good news to us. Look at uh, verse 9 and 10. I have proclaimed the good news of righteousness in the great assembly. That's the church. Indeed, I do not restrain my lips, O Lord. You yourself know. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have declared your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great assembly. There's a vibrancy here, isn't there? Clearly, he is eager to tell his people, the whole church, what has been accomplished by his sufferings for them. He says, I proclaim the good news. Look at it. He says, I proclaim the good news. He says, I do not restrain my lips. He says, I have not hidden. I have declared. I have not concealed. 
he wants people to know it's, it's vibrant. He's, he's communicating. He's eager. He's sending out all of his church to go and testify of what he has done. He's raising up his church to, to proclaim, the, to declare what he has done and to praise him for it that they might draw other people to come and worship him. Notice, though, what seems to drive him most of all. He wants his people to behold the glory of his heavenly father. Oh, that's interesting, isn't it? That's his passion. It is the good news of God's righteousness. Verse 10, he says, your righteousness. That's what he wants people to know. God's righteousness, not just you're delivered from the pit, but he wants you to see God's righteousness. It is the declaration of the father's faithfulness and salvation. That's what he declares. God's faithfulness and salvation. It is the revelation of the father's loving kindness and truth. His passion is that we would know his father. That is what he delights in most of all. He loves the father and he wants us to love him too. And he knows that that is the thing that will make our life whole and complete at last. What he did, God's whole plan of salvation by him was designed to reveal the Father's glory to us. We're so dull. That doesn't resonate with us like it does with our Master and our Lord. By His salvation to see the Father's righteousness. When we see what was required for our acceptance and pardon, we see that God's righteousness is uncompromising. He's not a God who can shift in and out of sin, of accepting sin or not accepting sin. For sinners like us to be reconciled, it required nothing less than His Son bearing our sins on the cursed cross, sinking into the pit for us that He might deliver us. Nothing else could take away our sin because God is of purer eyes than to behold evil. He does not have fellowship with sin, period. Sin will not dwell with Him. He is a holy, consuming fire to that which is impure. To try to be saved by some other way than by the offering of Christ, of God's Son, is to deny the righteousness of God that is set forth by Him. It's highly offensive to God and to His Son. Nothing but the blood of Jesus can take away our sin. To suggest that anything else could possibly do so is a grave offense. By this salvation, we also see the Father's faithfulness. The Father made a promise that He would save a people for Himself. We see His faithfulness in His salvation. He then went all out to keep that promise. Isn't that what faithfulness is? You make a promise and then you stick it out through the whole thing all the way to the end. He would not be thwarted by us, by Satan, by anything else. He went all the way to complete the task and then His Son came and went all the way even to the death of the cross to complete the work. He sent His only Son to bleed and die to bear the curse in His own body on the tree. This is uncompromising faithfulness. To doubt His word then is inexcusable. If God says something, there is no business of yours to deny that it is true. He is utterly faithful. He promised these things way back into the oracles of the Old Testament. And He has fulfilled all that He has spoken. And there is absolutely no way to deny that. You have to put your head in the sand to be able to deny that. And by this salvation, 
We see the Father's loving kindness, hesed, the Hebrew word hesed, often sometimes translated steadfast love in some of your Bibles, and truth, word that we get amen from, amen. These words, hesed and amen, are paired repeatedly in the Psalms to praise this characteristic of God, the steadfast, unchangeable love of our Heavenly Father. To consider that He should take such measures as He has to save those who had wickedly rebelled against Him speaks of a love beyond comprehension. That He should work out a way in which we could be justified and He could still be righteous. Perhaps we should go back to verse 5 and 6 again. Many, O Lord my God, are your wonderful, wonderful works which you have done, and your thoughts toward us cannot be recounted to you in order. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears you have opened. Burnt offerings, sin offering you did not require. If Christ has so much delight in showing us the Father, if that's his passion, to show us the Father, that's why he did what he did, should we not take delight in beholding our Heavenly Father? How ashamed we should be about our indifference when it comes to learning of God's glory. How often do we even think about it? We're wretched in that regard. But take heart. Because He's going to make it right. He's going to make us right. That's what His salvation does. His heart is ravished. We saw it in Song of Solomon with one look of affection from our eyes. Just one look and his heart is ravished because he knows that we would not have even that one look apart from his gracious saving work. And he knows that if there is that tiny spark, that it's going to grow up into an ardent flame in eternity. That he's going to bring forth from us such a delight in his father that he will be delighted with. It will be, we will see his glory. He knows that by His grace, the tiny spark becomes an ardent flame. The rest of the psalm, as we learned when we looked at it several weeks ago, is about His faithful intercession for His people as they stumble along in sin and indifference. He talks about, in that section, the rest of the psalm, about His heart failing Him sometimes when He sees His people and the condition that they're in and the dullness that they have. But He continues to pray. He continues to intercede. He knows that all those that the Father has given him will come to him. Some of them that aren't yet gathered in. He knows that we are predestined to be conformed to his own glorious image, the image of God's Son. That we will be like him. That, in that when that day comes that he calls us to himself, we will see him and we will be like him because we'll see him as he is. We'll see that glory and we will become like him. And he knows that his prayer in verse 16 of this psalm will be answered. Let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. That's our hope. I may not rejoice in God the way I ought to now, but I will because his prayer is going to be answered. He says, let those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let such as love your salvation say continually, the Lord be magnified. He has brought us out of the pit and soon we will be in glory with him, beholding the glory that he had with the Father before the foundation of the world. He is the one who came and did what the Father requires. He has accomplished it. 
he will see his salvation fulfilled in us, his church. All who have fled to him for refuge are one body with him. And we are delivered by him and by his saving work from the miry pit to glory forever and ever in his father's house. Established on a rock to praise God forever. Thanks be to God. Please stand and let's give thanks. Our gracious Heavenly Father, how we thank you, Lord, that you are the God that that is described in this psalm. You are the one whose righteousness is revealed by the salvation that you have wrought for us. We see that you are of purer eyes than to behold evil, that you will not compromise your righteousness in the least, that you will not dwell with sin. And this is good because it means that if we have been appointed to live in your house, that sin will be completely eradicated from our lives. We thank you for the hope that we have in our Savior who had no sin, in our Lord Jesus Christ who came to do your will. Father, we praise you that that in your saving work that we see your loving kindness and your truth. We see also your faithfulness. We see your faithfulness that you followed through with what you said you would do, that you accomplished it even though it meant great cost to yourself. You swore, as it were, to your own hurt, knowing that it would require everything from you in order to redeem us, even the giving up of your own son. And we thank you that you followed through all the way to the end. We praise you, O Lord, that now we have hope and assurance. We praise you that your loving kindness and your truth were also revealed. We see, Lord, your steadfast love in this deliverance of ours by your Son more than we can see it anywhere else. We pray, O Lord, that you would fill our hearts with adoration of you. Lord, I confess with pain that we do not have an appropriate adoration for you. But I praise you, Lord, that you will give it to us. And we are crying out to you, O Lord, with our Lord Jesus who intercedes for us even now. We're crying out and asking you by his name, in his name, that you would so work in us that which is pleasing in your sight. O Father, what a wonderful thing will be wrought in us. We thank you, Lord, that already we have been lifted out of the miry clay and we have been established in your household here in this place. But we pray, Lord, that we may be with you in glory in the days to come. And what a complete work will be accomplished and what a complete deliverance. How we praise you, Lord, for the forgiveness of our sins. That the whole body is a redeemed body because of what Jesus did. And all those who come to believe and who are joined to Christ, who are baptized in his name, looking to him in faith, they are added to this body. They are added to this church. And they become partakers of the salvation that Christ has accomplished for us. Oh, Father, we delight in your gracious workings in our behalf. We pray, Lord, that we would delight in it much more than we do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Blessing from him. So blessing our God now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. And the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.
Amen.